From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Crime and punishment on today's show with the top federal prosecutor in Colorado. The U.S. attorney here, Jason Dunn, steps down this month to make way for a Biden appointee. We'll talk with Dunn about bringing capital rioters to justice and about gun violence. It became clear to me after I got into this position that gun violence actually, despite the size of our city, is actually attributable to a very small number of people. Once a person is engaged in gun violence, they tend to do it many more times. Plus, Dunn thinks it's inevitable that marijuana will be legalized federally. He's against that. And how the pandemic affects crime. We certainly have seen more random violence, people engaging in shootings over trivial things, shooting family members, people getting in confrontations, driving down the highway. Support staying informed and help your fellow Coloradans at the same time. Right now, when you become a new member or add to your monthly giving, you'll provide a week's worth of groceries to a Colorado family. Thanks to a generous partnership with the Singer Family Foundation and five food banks across our state. Stay informed, stay connected. You make it possible at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The top federal prosecutor in Colorado is the U.S. attorney. And soon, we'll be getting a new one. Turnover is common between presidential administrations. This week, the man in the role now, Jason Dunn, handed in his resignation, effective February 28th. We have Mr. Dunn on the show now, as well as CPR's justice reporter, Allison Sherry, who has covered his tenure and has some questions for him of her own. Hi, Mr. Dunn. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. And Allison, nice to see you. Nice to see you. And Mr. Dunn, what can you tell us about your office's role, first off, in investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection? I understand this is the largest federal domestic terrorism investigation maybe ever. It, it really is something amazing and impressive. My office and really all U.S. attorneys offices around the country have been extremely aggressive and active in pursuing those who participated in um, the rioting inside the Capitol on January 6th. So our role really here in Colorado, working with our FBI office here in Denver, uh, has been to pursue individuals who we believe engaged in that activity and then get them in custody, get them charged. And then we've handed the case over to the Washington, D.C. office to pursue the actual charges. These are local folks who participated in the D.C. insurrection. Why is this such a priority for you? Well, I think everybody's really on the same page that we cannot tolerate that kind of activity in our country. Peaceful protesting is one thing, but when individuals trespass on federal property, destroy federal property, and more importantly, uh, disrupt the democratic process, um, the rule of law has to prevail, and we, and we have to prosecute those kind of cases aggressively to let people know that we won't tolerate that kind of conduct in our democracy. Do you notice any particular traits, similarities among the Coloradans who've been arrested in their viewpoints, in their you know life trajectories? You know, I don't know if I would want to categorize everybody or paint everybody with one brush, but Obviously, the people who were participating in the protests out there and then those who felt strongly enough to storm the Capitol felt that the election was stolen, 
felt that their voice was not being heard and felt strongly enough to, to travel across the country to obviously, in what I believe is a mistaken belief, try and restore what they thought uh, was a stolen election. Do you expect more arrests in Colorado? Yeah, we do. I think um, you will probably see um, at least several more. It's an ongoing process. My understanding is the U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C. has actually been asked to stay on in his role to lead that investigation. Um, And so I think you'll see more here in Colorado and, and probably in just about every other state. You know, during the proceedings for one of the Coloradans arrests that I was listening to um, in federal court, and a judge compared one of the extremist groups to a regular criminal gang. And I just did a story about this, and I asked a number of local sheriffs and police chiefs whether they would consider that, too, in the, in the course of their investigations. And here is something that uh, Douglas County Sheriff Tony Spurlock said. Black Lives Matter, clearly a political organization. Proud Boys, clearly a political organization. In each one of those, there are criminals hiding in there, utilizing that cover to commit crimes. And that's where law enforcement has to monitor very delicately, um, because both of those groups will come after you about interfering in their First Amendment rights. And for law enforcement, your hands are often tied. So do you think the white supremacist and paramilitary groups behind the Capitol insurrection should be treated like criminal organizations and and prosecuted, you know, say under RICO? I mean, that's a very difficult question. I think those at the Department of Justice are are thinking through. A lot of that depends on the nature of the organization, its leadership structure, the activities it engages in. And, you know, I think that's, it's a hard question to answer. I think there are certainly easier questions to answer within it, such as should people who engage in hate crimes be prosecuted? Of course they should. Should those who act in an organized fashion, be prosecuted collectively uh, for hate crimes. Of course they should. But I think if his point is that it's a fine line between investigating hate crimes and interfering with hate speech, which is, as I've often said, we don't investigate hate speech. That's First Amendment speech. We investigate hate crimes. And when someone crosses that line, that's where we're going to intervene and prosecute those. So to the extent there's a conspiracy for people to engage in hate crimes and cause harm to others, then yes, we'll investigate them as an organization and prosecute those cases as a conspiracy. Okay. I mean, in, in your investigations, and you, and you know a lot about this because you worked on the first four Coloradans who were who were arrested. Do you see a criminal organization element behind some of these groups? You know, do they have money? Do they do they have plans for future criminal acts, which would put them in that criminal organization territory? From what I've seen of the individuals in Colorado, I don't think that's the case. I think most of the people in Colorado who we have arrested and charged, um, while they may be associated with some um, organizations that have white supremacist affiliation or or hate group affiliation, most of them seem to have participated in the events on January 6th in their individual capacity. Here we are, gosh, a month and a half after the insurrection. Has the work mostly been analyzing video footage? What, what does the work look like? Yeah, it's been truly amazing. They have, I'm not sure what the number is now of, of pieces of evidence, mostly video evidence obtained off social media, but it's in the hundreds of thousands. So it's a truly impressive effort. And, and, and as you said, probably something that has never been uh, done before in the history of our country at this level. Jason Dunn, in your resignation letter, you touted your work holding capital insurrectionists accountable, uh, as you have done here. 
Uh, you also reinforced in that letter that the 2020 election was fair and secure. That is something that President Trump falsely disputed. Are you prosecuting people your former boss helped incite? Uh, if your question is, are the people we've arrested for rioting at the Capitol, were they incited by the president? You know, I think certainly the president made a call for people to come to Washington. I think he has engaged in a uh, campaign to dispute the election. I think he was certainly entitled to pursue all lawful avenues and pursue litigation. Um, those were universally rejected by the courts. So, you know, I think certainly we are prosecuting people who were listening to what the president had to say. And I think it's certainly their travel to Washington and being part of the, you know, the, the, the um, protest that was going on there certainly was a function of the rhetoric that he was engaging in since the election. You've served as Colorado's top federal prosecutor for two years. As you prepare to leave, is there, is there a single investigation or a case or a bust that will really stick with you? Boy, that's a hard question. There, there's a variety. You know, we prosecuted a rape case at the Air Force Academy. Normally, we wouldn't do those cases. They'd be done by the military or by the local DA. But um, in this case, because the cadet we were prosecuting was actually a Peruvian national, he was here on an exchange program. He didn't fall under the, the uniform uh, military code. And, and um, it happened on federal property. So we actually took the case, which was something rare for us. And, and I felt important to do. And I remember talking to the female cadet who was the victim after she testified at the case and really seeing the grief that she was experiencing and the trauma that she experienced. And, and I spent some time talking to her afterward and trying to console her a little bit, but tell her how proud I was of the courage she showed in, in stepping up to testify and talk about the violent incident that happened to her. So it wasn't the biggest case we did, but you know, it was one of the few where I actually got to uh, interact closely with the victims. Similarly, the Planned Parenthood shooting down in Colorado Springs, that case has been mired in the state legal process for, I think, over five years now. And I was first approached at an event by um, the widow of the police officer down there who was killed in that shooting. And she said, you've got to help us. This case isn't going anywhere and we're not getting justice. He killed other people as well and shot several other people, including other police officers. And I talked to my staff and I said, you know, we, we need to help on this if we can. And so we charged that case under a federal uh, civil rights case called the FACE Act, um, which is a statute designed to protect access to health clinics. And, you know, while it's been a difficult case for us as well, because of all the mental health reasons around the shooter, you know, it was a case that I felt strongly that we had to try and seek some justice for those who were who were victimized down there. So those are the kind of cases where we can step in and make a difference. And those are the ones that I think mean the most to me. That slain police officer, 44-year-old Garrett Swayze, he was uh, a cop at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, who, who responded. Uh, we often hear from your office on a bust-by-bust basis, Jason Dunn, but was there a theme to your time in the role? I mean, certain types of crimes you were particularly focused on? Yeah, I think for any U.S. attorney, the types of crimes you focus on are in large part dependent on what's happening at that time you, you serve. In my case, we tried to really focus on two things. One was gun violence. There was certainly a significant increase in the number of murders and gun violence in the Denver metro area over the last couple of years. And it became clear to me after I 
got into this position that gun violence actually, despite the size of our city, is actually attributable to a very small number of people. Once a person is engaged in gun violence, they tend to do it many more times. Hmm. And so if you can take that person off the street, you actually have a dramatic impact on it. And so I worked hard to push local law enforcement to use us as a tool to help in their communities because we can charge federal, what are called felon in possession crimes, where if it, you know once a person has a felony conviction, they're not allowed to be in possession of a gun. And so rather than local law enforcement trying to build a drug case or prove a shooting that the person was actually a shooter after the fact, it's much easier for them to catch someone who is a felon in possession of a weapon and then have us charge the case. And typical sentences on those are five, six years in federal prison where mm-hmm. you'll, a person will serve at least 85% of that time. The other one is, of course, the increase in opioids in Colorado and across the country. We attack that both from a civil perspective and a criminal perspective. Uh, on the criminal side, of course, we went after doctors who were dealing out the back door we, or writing bad prescriptions, drug dealers who were bringing um, huge quantities of fake uh, prescription drugs up from Mexico. But we particularly targeted fentanyl because that is just so deadly. If you think of a penny, all you need to do is cover the eye of Lincoln in a penny, and that's enough fentanyl to be fatal. Drug dealers aren't that precise when they're mixing fentanyl into a, a fake prescription pill. Um, and the rest of the pill is just filler. And people were dying and are dying and continue to die from fentanyl overdosing. And so we wanted to send a message on the streets that if someone dies from your drug dealing, we will charge you with a death resulting case. And that's a mandatory minimum of sentence of 20 years in federal prison. On the civil side, we tried to use a very analytical approach to study um, how pharmacists and doctors and other pain management prescribers were distributing opioids and use an analytical approach to figure out, you know, who are they prescribing to? Are they are they giving them away too easy? Are they giving them away when they shouldn't be? Are they prescribing pills to people they know to be addicts? And we use that approach to really target those who are distributing here in Colorado. And then, of course, one of the cases I'm most proud of is one is a recent case where we filed litigation against Walmart for its distribution and dispensing practices. So on the guns piece, I wanted to ask you something specifically, which is, you know, I know your office has focused a lot on this, but, you know, Colorado's crime statistics in 2020 um, were soaring, including juvenile crime. And many of those incidents involve some sort of illegal firearm. So my question to you is, even though you focused on this, is this a problem that just cannot get solved? Are there any larger policy issues you'd endorse? Yeah, on the juvenile piece, that's one of the places where I think, unfortunately, our hands are tied. We have very limited ability to uh, prosecute juveniles in the federal system. So we generally defer to local law enforcement on those types of cases in the district attorney's offices. And as you suggest, there is a alarming number of juvenile gun cases occurring in in Denver and elsewhere. Hmm. Uh, More and more of the uh, murders and shootings that are happening are happening by people who are under the age of 18. So that's very concerning. And a lot of those weapons are obtained through illegal means. Either they're through straw purchases uh, or they're through home invasions or stolen out of cars. A straw purchase, by the way, is when someone else buys a gun for you. That's correct. Yeah. Someone who could who could pass the federal background check and then obviously purchases a gun and gives it to another person. So we took an aggressive approach on prosecuting those kinds of cases. If somebody engaged in a straw purchase or they 
um, were selling guns outside the the lawful means. We prosecuted those cases aggressively, and I you know I worked hard to try and encourage those who who manufacture and sell guns, obviously that they've got to do a better job of protecting those weapons. There certainly were a number of alarming gun store burglaries over the last few years, and all of those guns inevitably wind up uh, in the hands of criminals. So we've got to do more to make sure that, that that doesn't happen. And I think individuals have to take more responsibility in protecting and, and securing their, their guns. The attorney general's office in Colorado right now has a public service effort underway to encourage people to do that. And I fully support that. People need to be responsible gun owners and make sure they're not left in cars and easily accessible at home by either burglars or children or, or anyone else. In what ways is the pandemic affecting the rate and the types of crime? Yeah, it's a great question. I've talked with Paul Pazin, the Denver Police Department chief, about that many times during the last year and a half or so. It's a very interesting question. Certainly crime has been up dramatically, and you have to believe that it's somehow tied to, at least in part, to the pandemic and the economic fallout of that. Um, But you know, we certainly have seen more random violence, people engaging in shootings over trivial things, shooting family members over trivial things, people getting in confrontations, driving down the highway, which results in gun violence. So, you know, I th- it's hard to pinpoint one type of crime or one cause, but certainly it seems the pandemic and the economic fallout of that has, has certainly led people to be more willing to engage in random violence. One crystal ball question. Do you see federal legalization of marijuana coming? Uh, I, I, you know, my sense is, unfortunately, that seems probably inevitable. Unfortunately, you say? Yeah, I've not been a proponent of it, of legalization. When I came in to, obviously, Colorado has been a forefront of that. So that was probably the question I was most asked about when I was starting my time as U.S. attorney. I think I probably was among the people asking, in fact. You were. Yep. You were, for sure. And we worked hard to prosecute black market marijuana cases in Colorado. By that, I mean those who are growing a thousand plants in their basement. We're aware of large groups, I call them syndicates, that might be not the right term, but syndicates in, in the Denver metro area where people own, and I'm not exaggerating, upwards of a thousand houses in Colorado in the Denver metro area where they're growing marijuana to be produced and shipped out of state. So we took an aggressive approach on on stopping that kind of operation. There's a similar quote unquote syndicate down in, in the Colorado Springs area doing the same thing. So I think that's a real problem. The other issue that I really was concerned about when I came in was the THC levels in marijuana, particularly in concentrates. So-called marijuana concentrates account for, I think, at least 25% now of you know, state lawful marijuana sales in Colorado. These are, these are marijuana products where the concentrations are upwards of 80, 90, 95% THC, as opposed to marijuana back you know, a couple of decades ago that was closer to the teens or even single digit concentration levels. So you know, the, the sort of super concentrate high-potency marijuana products are not, I think, what people intended to legalize in Colorado. And I'm not sure everybody even knows that they're being sold or that they account for the proportion of sales going on right now. If you look at the um, statistics around mental health um, visits to emergency rooms, a shockingly high number of those involve marijuana. 
Um, and so there's a lot of evidence now showing that high concentrate marijuana creates paranoia and anxiety to the point where people are, are taking themselves or having friends take them to the emergency room. So it's a serious question. I know the state legislature is is considering um, some legislation on that. And you know, certainly I think that's something worth looking at for sure. Jason, is there anything you're afraid that your successor will undo uh, under the Biden administration? Uh, I don't think so on the, on the local level here. One of the things that I was somewhat surprised about when I came in, obviously coming in after the Obama administration, was how it really didn't make much difference who the president was in terms of the day-to-day operations of our office, and even to some extent who the attorney general was. We, um, you know, the people in my office, many of them have been there for decades. They do fantastic work. They prosecute the cases. They try and do the right thing. They try and get a just result. Those are universal principles that I think prosecutors adhere to. And there certainly are some policy changes that come down from Washington about the types of crimes we might emphasize, the sentences, ranges we might seek. But in large part, you know, one of the good things about being in so-called flyover country here in Colorado is that, you know, we just keep marching along. We keep doing uh, justice and we keep trying to get the right outcomes and all the stuff in Washington we don't listen to too much. Thank you so much for being with us. Allison, nice to have you along. Thanks for letting me join, both of you. (laughs) Thank you both for having me on. Jason Dunn is the U.S. attorney in Colorado for a few more days. With the change of administrations in Washington, someone new will step into the role. Allison Sherry is our justice reporter. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast, Back From Broken. Last season, we told stories of life's challenges, of recovery, and hope. And you listen. Really blown away by Back From Broken. Back From Broken inspired me to... Thank you very much for your messages of recovery and hope. They mean a lot to a parent like me. So this season on Back From Broken, more stories about hope. Happiness is just like right here. You know, it's in being alive. Find Back From Broken on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The United States has landed once again on Mars. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. Thursday afternoon, the Perseverance rover, Percy for short, landed on Mars and sent its first pictures back from the surface. Several Colorado contractors helped design and build Perseverance, which, as we heard in that clip, will search for signs of previous life on Mars. I spoke last week with Boulder astronomer Doug Duncan and asked him to describe the vehicle. Well, at first glance, Perseverance looks a lot like the Curiosity rover that preceded it. But uh, believe it or not, it's been nine years since we landed the Curiosity rover on Mars. And even though they both look kind of the same, like a small car, the new one has much more powerful instruments. I use the analogy of of a smartphone, actually. My smartphone looks pretty much like the smartphone from nine years ago, but it's a lot more powerful. (laughs) And it has some new instruments, doesn't it? It does. For instance, uh, it's got more and better cameras, like my cell phone. Um, Curiosity had seven cameras, and it sent back some pretty awesome pictures of Mars. But Perseverance has 23 cameras. They're mostly color. uh, They they have zoom. Some of them are stereoscopic cameras. And for the first time, Perseverance carries a microphone. This is what I'm most excited about. 
the microphone. So does that mean we're going to hear what Mars sounds like? We sure are. I think we'll hear the these winds, dust storms perhaps, blowing dust. Um, I doubt if we'll hear birds, um, but I'm sure we're going to hear the sounds of perseverance driving around and, and what the, the wheels crunch and, and roll over and the sound of drilling into the rocks and, and maybe some surprises because we've never had the sounds of Mars. I'm very excited to hear what that would be. Yeah. There's this instrument um, called Moxie, Doug. What, what's Moxie? Yeah, Moxie is a very important test. Moxie can make oxygen out of the carbon dioxide in Mars' atmosphere. And it's designed to demonstrate how future explorers could make oxygen right there on Mars. You need oxygen to breathe, of course, but don't forget the rocket also needs oxygen. The way a rocket works is you mix liquid oxygen and fuel. And so if you could make oxygen right there on Mars, it means you wouldn't have to carry all of it from the Earth in order to have a, a return rocket. This perplexes me. There is a helicopter called Ingenuity. And I just want to say that there are Colorado companies all over the U.S. mission. I mean, Lockheed Martin, United Launch Alliance, Sierra Nevada Corporation. Uh, but this helicopter Ingenuity, how, how would a helicopter fly in the thin Martian atmosphere? Well, it's really a challenge. It has two blades that are about four feet across that rotate opposite each other. And the counter-rotating blades go 2,400 RPM. That's like 40 times a second. Oh. Uh, to get enough lift. And the whole uh, Ingenuity only weighs four pounds, and it's solar-powered. Now, of course, there's nobody there to fly it in person, and so it's kind of more like a drone with its own little computer. Yeah. And it's pre-programmed to fly up about mm, 50, 60 feet. It looks around with two little cameras, and it's kind of a scout. And this is a test to see if a scout helicopter can help us explore faster and better by kind of seeing what's over the horizon for the rover to explore. I also asked astronomer Doug Duncan about the unique landing site Perseverance will now explore. Jezero Crater was once underwater. Oh, You can tell that looking at pictures taken from space because the crater rim has a big gap in it where a river once flowed. And there's a delta. And so there's lots of layers of mud and sediment, and it used to be wet. And that seems like a very good place to look for life. What would signs of past life look like? Um, fossil, well, like fossils? You know, uh, it would be great to find a fossil. What I think is more probable is what colonies of bacteria leave. On the Earth, some of the earliest life was cyanobacteria or blue-green algae. Yeah. And the algae often live in big colonies that are like sheets or mats, like a, like a dinner mat, all spread across. And if sediments cover those up, you end up with uh, kind of layered or striped fossils that are called stromatolites. And those are the oldest uh, fossils in Colorado, as a matter of fact, are stromatolites. The Perseverance rover has uh, an instrument that shoots x-rays into rocks, and it can tell what they're made of. And it's got those zoom cameras that can zoom in for a really good close-up. 
So I think the most likely sign of life that could be found if it's there uh, is something like the stromatolites, the old fossils on the earth. Thank you so much, Doug. I appreciate it. Always fascinating. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Doug Duncan is former director of the Fisk Planetarium at CU Boulder. We spoke last week about the Perseverance mission, which successfully landed on Mars Thursday afternoon. And thanks to producer Michelle P. Fulcher, who put that segment together. A correction now from someone who has a lot of school pride. Earlier this week, we mentioned Colorado filmmaker Aaron Lewis, who has made a documentary about fires in Siberia called Smoldering Ice. Our guest from the Colorado Environmental Film Festival mentioned that Lewis was in college, but he named the wrong school. And Lewis wrote us to say, I am actually a Western Colorado University student. So we send our apologies to Gunnison. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, reminding you that you're part of the team that makes Colorado Matters possible as well, with your support at CPR.org. This is CPR News.